ब्रह्मानंदम परमसुखादम केवलम गानमूर्तिम दंडातीतम गगनसद्रिशम तत्पमाश्यादिलक्षम एकम नित्यम विमलमाचालम सार्वदेशक्षिभूतम भवातीतम भीगुनरहितं सद्गुरुं त्वाम नमानि I bow to my guru I bow to God my guru as God I bow to you as an expression of both I would like to talk a little bit about the vastness of the universe. You know, back in the days that we know of the Shastras, back in those days when they were written, people knew these things. But they came into a period of history when people lost contact with other worlds, other stars, other systems. And so the realities had to be explained to people in a much more human way. But in an age where man's consciousness is expanding again, and we'll go into that in another, another time here, that uh, the awareness of the universe is becoming much, much more expansive. It's just thrilling to think how huge this universe is. Back just a few years ago, I, in fact, I've mentioned this before, I don't think that the astronomers knew until about 1920 that the sun even wasn't the center of everything. I think it was actually in 1918 that Hubble discovered that the astronomy, the, the, the uh, nebula in Andromeda was really another star system. And as I also mentioned not so long ago, that in the 30s, when I was a schoolboy in England, the one of my teachers said to me, oh, just agog with amazement, he said, you know, this, all the stars you see are just a part of one star system, that there are others. He said, there may be as many as two or even three. And I was amazed. Other star systems besides our own? <laughs> Nowadays, they know that there are at least 100 billion. And who's counting? This vast universe. And our Guruji talked in those terms more because the advancement of science has been a great help spiritually because it's helped people to be able to talk in such a way that people can accept these things and not just uh, like that as if, gee, well, he must know what he's talking about. We know that he does. So I'd like to read to you a very interesting passage here in the... Um, in the book... Conversations with Yogananda. All creation, he taught, and as the Bhagavad Gita states also, is a mixture of the three gunas, or basic qualities of consciousness. The lowest of them, you all have heard this, is Tamoguna, the darkening quality. Next comes Rajoguna, the activating quality. The highest of the three is Sattaguna, the spiritually clarifying or elevating quality. The universe everywhere manifests predominantly one or another of these qualities. Indeed, the Master told us that entire galaxies manifest primarily one 
or another guna. I must paraphrase here, for although I am quoting, my recollection of his actual words is a little vague. So, quoting, There are entire galaxies where Thomas predominates. The inhabitants of the planets in those galaxies are for the most part brutish and incapable of, of aspiring to spiritual heights. Fierce animals abound there in cannibalism. The inhabitants are constantly in a state of conflict and warfare. Lust and every animal pleasure are considered the best that life has to offer. Again, there are galaxies where Rajoguna predominates. The planets in them are peopled by more self-aware beings whose primary concern is with self-advancement, self-aggrandizement, aggrandizement, and self-importance. Our own so-called Milky Way galaxy is such a system. I, meaning myself, the author, should interject here the personal supposition that this Earth, situated as it is near the outskirts of our galaxy, may receive less of the spiritual power that Swami Sirikteshwar said emanates from the galactic center. Thus, we on Earth may be even more rajasic than the majority of those rajasic planets which are closer to the center. There are, finally, the Master continued, entire galaxies where Satvaguna predominates. The planets there resemble legends of the Garden of Eden. The people there can communicate easily with beings in the astral world. Harmony and beauty are prevalent everywhere. One should always bear in mind, however, that whatever the predominating guna, intelligent beings are still, as I said, confined in their egos. Perfection cannot be attained except in the infinite self. For that true self, the ego, is a prison. The soul's eternal longing is ever and never ceases to be for freedom and perfect bliss. The infinite self not only permeate, permeates all manifested existence, but lies beyond all manifestation and is its ultimate cause. Even to contemplate the cosmic vastness is expansive to the mind. Dwell always on the thought that in your true self you are infinite and eternal. Memorize also my poem, Samadhi, Repeat it every day when you meditate. Those of you who have autobiography of a yogi in your possession, turn to that chapter on cosmic consciousness. You'll find there that poem, Samadhi. I have to say it's the most wonderful, expansive, mystical poem in the whole world that I've ever read. Most of them, not because they knew less, all masters are one. You can't say one is greater than the other. But they can say certain things at certain times because man is ready for them. And so our Guruji was able to express this experience of samadhi in a way that would be more understandable to us today than just speaking of the cosmic bridegroom and the marriage of the soul with the God and so on according to mystical terminology or just aham brahmasmi as the Vedanta says. He could talk of it much more specifically. And you know an amazing thing about that? He told us one time, do you know where I wrote that poem? On the subway in New York City. 
He said he was going from one end of the line to the other, writing his poem. He said, nobody asked me for my ticket. I suppose in those days they did ask for tickets. They don't now. But uh, whatever the case, he said, in fact, nobody even saw me. But you know, in that environment, which is by about as far away from cosmic consciousness as you can imagine, you see people sitting in or standing in the subway or hanging onto the straps, sort of almost in dead consciousness until finally they reach their destination, suddenly they come alive and they get off. But it's, a, it's a, an environment that is by no means conducive to sadhana or expansive consciousness. He wrote that poem there. Mind you, you can see God anywhere when you have God. And so that was a part of the lesson of his life, that wherever you are, if you're in God, you can see him everywhere. In the worst places, in the most beautiful places, it's all God. He could see, even in death, he said, you've no idea how beautiful it is. The disintegration of the atoms of the body, they're lights. There's all these astral entities working and cure and dissolving everything back into itself so that it can manifest again. Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva, all are part of the one blissful play of God. There's no destruction. You think of Shiva as terrible because he destroys the universe. He doesn't destroy. He transmutes the universe, brings everything back into God. He transmutes you, all your attachments, all your follies, all those things that you fear so much to lose. And when Shiva comes in, in that aspect to destroy that part of you, it looks terrible, but it's not. It's liberating. If you can take everything is coming from him, there is freedom in all things. So, actually, you know, Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva, if you look at it from a yogic point of view, they're not people. They're not somebody with foreheads and arms and all that stuff, nothing like that. They are the three aspects of Om. Om is the infinite vibration of the spirit that manifests the universe and that withdraws it back. Now, when Om manifests the universe, it takes a little bit more energy to start something, doesn't it? So the energy is higher. That's why when you chant the threefold Om, you chant the first one higher. Om. And then Vishnu is the second. It's the preserving one. So when you start a car motor, let's say, start it, and it takes a little more energy. Then when it's going, it comes along. Then when it comes to a stop, and so these are the three aspects of Om also. That in the beginning, Om, and you should sing it louder too. Then the next one is the Vishnu, the preserving. That's that vibration of Om. It's not a person, that's just legend. That's to popularize it, to get people to sort of preserve the truth. But the truth behind it is very yogic, very advaitic. Or, well, it's not Advaita because it's part of Dvaita, but it's the manifestation. It's the Divine Mother. And so, in that Vishnu consciousness, Om, that's the even, the, the steady, the keeping, the preservative. And, of course, everybody likes Vishnu because he preserves things as they are, and people don't like change. But Shiva is beautiful, too. 
people don't like the changes he introduces because he seems to be destroying. But he's the low, very deep, deep om. Om. And that's very quiet. And when you say om, this is why it's really wrong to write O-M, except that in English you don't have very, you don't have very many pure vowels. So you say OM, even though you write OM. And if you write AUM, people say AUM, which isn't correct. It should be OM. That's the correct pronunciation of OM, OM. But the M is the, the A uh is Brahma, U is Vishnu, M is Shiva, dissolving everything back into him. We should try to worship all these aspects of OM, when you listen to them in meditation, when you hear them in meditation, each one has its own beauty. But the beauty of Shiva, the renunciate, giving up everything, leaving everything, going back into himself. What a wonderful image. All the legends about these different people, they're, they're games, they're fun, they popularize it, and there's nothing wrong with it, it's beautiful. But don't think that it's the reality. You know, when Krishna is playing his flute in the forest and all the gopis are running to look for him and the Rashalina dancing together with Krishna and Krishna is the one Krishna for each gopi dancing with him and so on, that's all allegorical. You know the real sound when you go deep in meditation? This is a part of yoga. When you go deep in meditation, you begin to hear the sounds of the different chakras. The sound of the sacral chakra is that of a flute. That flute, when you hear it in meditation, it calls you back into the wilderness, calls you back into the forest, out of delusion. The first sound is a sound of like a drum, sort of beating you up. One time, uh, a disciple of Yogananda, his first disciple in America, he was a dentist and rather a proper, you know, Bostonian, as we say in America. And... Uh, he kind of didn't like all the drumming because my Guruji loved to play the tabla and with very great vigor, or the, also the medanga, or the dholak. And uh, Dr. Lewis would sort of resent it a little bit. He went along with it because, after all, it was his guru. But Master one time said, Get into it, Doctor. It'll loose the karma in the spine. Chanting is great. It does loosen it. And the rhythms of chanting, if they're good, they're you listen to the rhythms of African and Indian music, it's altogether different. The Indian rhythms are very sophisticated. They're very internal. When they're done right, they have an uplifting thing. They help to lift the karma. And so the different sounds of each of these chakras, each one has its own actual sound. The third chakra, the Manipur, has a sound like a plucked string instrument. That's why in Christian See, all religions are one, and they've all touched the hem of the same truth. In Christian tradition, they think of heavenly harps, and they think that when you get to heaven, you play the harp. Well, I can't imagine anything more boring than playing the harp for eternity, for heaven's sake. But what they're really talking about is, when you hear that sound, it has a plucked string instrument, and it draws the mind still further. Well, I don't have time today to go into it in length, at length. I'd like to. But... Uh, in the practice of yoga, there's a whole inner universe. And that's what contemplating the external universe helps us to remember. That the universe we're really seeking is 
inside ourselves. Joy to you. Door of my heart, open wide, I keep for thee. Door of my heart, open wide, I keep for thee. Wilt thou come, wilt thou come, just for once, come to me. Wilt thou come, wilt thou come, just for once, come to me. Will my days fly away without seeing thee, my Lord? Will my days fly away without seeing thee, my Lord? Night and day, night and day, I look for thee night and day. Night and day, night and day, I look for thee night and day. Door of my heart, open wide, I keep for thee. Door of my heart, open wide, I keep for thee. Wilt thou come, wilt thou come, just for once come to me? Wilt thou come, wilt thou come, just for once come to me? Will my days fly? My days fly away without seeing thee, my Lord. Night and day, night and day, I look for thee, night and day. Night and day, night and day, I look for thee, night and day. 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 Night and day.